All right, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, this is the Flashpoint Podcast. I am your host, Owen Higgins, as always. Uh, if you are listening on the app, please uh, subscribe to the show so that you can stay updated on uh, shows as they come up. We're going to have a really big one on Friday. We'll be making the announcement for that, I think, on Wednesday. Uh, pretty big guest there to talk about foreign policy and uh, the legislative process in Congress from a real uh, uh, hands-on approach, as it were, um, you know, really uh, from somebody who's who's really there. So, uh, but today um, I'm joined by Carol Schaefer, and uh, Carol is a reporter whose work has ap- appeared in Smithsonian, ProPublica, The Atlantic. Uh, and more. She was a Fulbright uh, in Germany from 2019 to 2020, and I'm sure we'll get to that. Uh, but right now, uh, she is in Poland, and she just returned. I believe, Carol, you just returned from the Ukrainian border. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I uh, I came from Chemischil yesterday, uh, where I had been for about four days. I'm back in Warsaw now. Got it. And so... Um, you know, we, we were chatting a little bit while while you were there, and, and you said, you know, a couple times that I, I think one of the messages you sent me, you said that you weren't even sure if I was going to get it because of the spotty service. Um, and, but now you're back in Warsaw where, where things are a little more stable. Um, can you kind of walk us through uh, what it was like getting out there and, and what you saw there? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, it was not too difficult because I was able to just rent a car. Um, And so I drove down from Warsaw and that really gave me um, some of the more flexibility to be able to leave Chamichel and uh, like find places to stay because uh, the, the places to stay around the book border are just completely booked. Um, You know, everything's just completely full. And so if you, you want to, place to stay you need to be prepared to you know drive or or get get somewhere that's potentially like an hour away so I mean that's why I wasn't able to message you because the the closest place that I could stay was at, at like a mountain retreat about an hour and a half away with with absolutely zero service and no wi-fi uh, so it's not that the 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 wi-fi or the the communications are, are down there's actually quite a bit of infrastructure at the border. Um, it's, it's just that it's, it's difficult to get down there and it's difficult to, to find a place to lay your head at night. Um, just because so many people are so desperate to, to find a, a way to just take a, take a moment to, to breathe in, in safety, um, because they've been fleeing. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, there are, uh, a lot of people there. Um, I think that there's some, what's the count now? Like a million people uh, have, have left uh, Ukraine or, and have kind of like flooded to the West. Yeah. So I think the count right now is about one and a half million people have fled so far. And basically anywhere between a half of that. So 700,000 of those people up to a million have gone to Poland and then, uh, it's been to other places like Hungary, Slovakia, um, Czech Republic, Germany, and into France. So, um, but for 
most Ukrainians, the first stop is into Poland. Yeah. 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 And that's, um, that's kind of what we've been seeing, right? Like we've been seeing the, uh, the strollers and, uh, you know, people offering food, uh, to people, people in Poland are offering food to people who are fleeing from Ukraine. And for now, at least it appears that there's a sense of solidarity with, with refugees. And, and I think that, you know, in, in a little bit, we'll get into, you know, which refugees get solidarity and which don't. Uh, but uh, are you still seeing that in Poland? Are people still enthusiastic about welcoming people in or, or have, have things changed at all? Uh, just, you know, from, from, from what you can tell. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, but, but what you say about who, who's welcomed in and who isn't is, is a very important point, but overall, um, yes, the, the response, at least here in Poland has been of overwhelming support. I mean, here in Warsaw, every bus in the city has an, has a Ukrainian flag on it. Um, there's signs everywhere saying, uh, you know, we stand with Poland. There's just been a mass mobilization of people to do things like deliver supplies to the border, uh, make sandwiches, donate clothes, food, baby food, um, all kinds of things like that that are necessary for relief. Um, Polish people have really jumped to offer that, um, which is ironically a, a huge shift from the political message and the overall climate for Ukrainians in the last 10 years, but especially since 2015, since the last refugee crisis, when uh, the right-wing party Law and Justice came to, party, came to power in 2015. Um, so, so that's been a really remarkable and, and really interesting shift um, that I think is, is still playing out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it certainly seems that there, uh, that there has been kind of a, a shift from the West kind of in general against Russia, uh, due to this conflict. And, and, and yeah, I imagine that it is playing out here in Poland with, with the refugees. Um, what, so can you kind of like, describe to us what it looks like there, what it sounds like, um, you know, just like kind of what the chaos of, of thousands and thousands of people just arriving. Cause they're all pretty much all arriving uh, via train, right? There's people that are arriving via train. And then also about 20 minutes away is the actual border crossing in a town called Medica. And that is also where people are coming through. So, I mean, at the train station, it's actually a beautiful train station. It's just a very, like, ornate, beautifully uh, designed, um, ro- uh, I think, Baroque uh, um, building that was built in uh, the early 19th century maybe uh I, I could be wrong about that but it's it's a beautiful building but basically yeah there's just thousands of people that are just coming through every day um at the train station itself you've got these long rooms uh or you've got this hallway and then you've got rooms 
that go off of the side of the hallway. One room is for um, urgent medical care. Another room is only for women and children so that children can like play. Um, babies can be breastfed like with more privacy. Um, and then there's like a cafe in the back and that's really mostly where like the journalists are hanging out. They're like sitting there and, and writing and filing stories. Um, and then over in the, and then all along this, like people are like sleeping, people are sleeping on benches, chairs. Um, everyone's just exhausted. Just, you really feel just how deeply exhausted everyone is. And then in the main hallway, it's just very chaotic. There's, uh, there are people that are holding up signs, uh, in, in Ukrainian, basically saying like France or Germany, Dusseldorf, um, or, um, Budapest or Norway. People just come from all over just to stand there and hold these signs. People just that are coming over, um, in their own private car. Maybe they rented a van, um, I met like these German guys from Berlin that had just decided to come down and try and help and try and bring people back to shelter in Berlin, give them SIM cards, give them food. Um, there's a food station where people are handing out, um, like stuffed cabbage rolls or, um, kielbasa soup, um, like sausage soup. Um, and yeah, and then there's, then there's the trains themselves. And then there's a, a train that comes in, uh, every couple hours from Lviv. And then there's one train a day, I, I believe that, uh, leaves from Chemishil and goes all the way to Kiev. So there, there are, there is a long line of people that are also waiting to go back into Ukraine. It's, it's mostly men that are returning to fight uh, or that want to be reunited with their families. Um, I met one woman, though, that uh, had gone on vacation. And uh, when all of this started and was like, look, like my life is in Lviv. I'm going back. Like, I, I, I can't, I can't just be cut off from Ukraine. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's such an intense thing to think about. You know, uh, one thing that, that kind of keeps like bouncing around my head when I think about the refugee crisis here is something. And so as, uh, as, as, as an Irish American, you know, my part of my family, uh, stayed in Ireland and part, part of it left and at the time, kind of what they said was that those who had something stayed and those who didn't left. Um, I'm wondering if, if the opposite is true, though, in, in this case, and if you've seen anything like that, that uh, the people who have the means to leave are the ones who are leaving Ukraine and that the ones who are left behind are the ones that don't uh, really have anything and don't have the resources to leave. Um, I'm not sure how much like you've been able to tell. Uh, that from from your experience reporting on this, but I'd be I'd be curious to to get your sense of that in general. I, I I mean it's it's very hard to tell just because I haven't 
been in Ukraine, basically going inside Ukraine right now, um, you can you can do it. Like it's totally possible, especially if you're going to Lviv. Lviv is still mostly safe. Um, it's just that getting out. It's it's really difficult. So that's like a that's basically like a two day journey just to like cross the border, even just you know. 50 kilometers in, um, I guess like, what is that? 25 miles. Um, but I mean, the people that have been able to leave, um, I think are, are everyone. Um, I, I think, I, I think there's, there's actually quite a few people who, um, like could leave and are, are choosing not to. I talked to one girl through, um, who I, who I roughly know through my Fulbright network, you know, she, she's a Fulbright scholar as well. She's Ukrainian and she's choosing to, to stay. She's about, I don't know, 200 kilometers from, from Kiev. Um, and she's safe, but yeah, I mean, so she's choosing to stay. So, I mean, I think a lot of, um, people are, are choosing to go, um, but everybody's leaving something behind. I think everyone's leaving someone behind. Um, I, yeah, I met um, I met the someone who was working for the Ministry of Culture, um, and she had to leave her her husband behind because he's of military age. Um, I met a lot of people who who were separated from their husbands, sons, brothers. Um, so, so that's been, that's been very difficult, I think. So yeah, because a lot of the men have been conscripted, right? Like, like they, they have to either stay and fight or, or I guess from, you know, from what you're saying, some of them have to return to fight as well. They, well, so I, I believe that if you're returning to fight, that's totally voluntary. That's, that's not, a requirement necessary. It's, it's really a choice that, you know, you're going to leave the EU where there's no war and and return to it to fight. But if you are of military age, so if you're between 18 and 60 and you're a man, you are not allowed to leave the country. Uh, I don't believe they've all been conscripted yet um, or, or, you know, drafted, um, but they are required to stay in the country in case of uh, a draft. Got it. Got it. Um, you know, it, you spent time in Germany a couple years ago. Um, I'm assuming that you probably spent some time in Poland then as well. Uh, and obviously this is a different situation, but I'm just kind of curious as to how you know, what it's like being, being in Poland right now with the war going on and what it's like, uh, just, just what it feels like and how it feels different than the last time that you were, uh, in this part of the world. Well, Germany, uh, Germany is very, very different from Poland. And I, I did travel over a little bit, um, just, you know, for vacations or like, you know, little weekend trips because it's, it's fairly easy from Berlin. I mean, Warsaw is only about a six hour train ride. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd come over and check it out, but, um, 
you know, Poland's Poland's very different from from Germany. Poland's part of um, a general, you know, right wing populist uh, coalition in the EU. So so you can really sense that and feel that. Um, but uh, versus Germany, which is kind of the the heart of of liberal Europe. Um, but I guess I would say that what's really remarkable is the the overall attitude towards Ukrainians that have that has changed um, in Poland, um, just because the rhetoric against Ukrainians has been so severe the last, you know, whatever it is. Eight years, seven yeah, years, years, since two thousand, yeah, yeah, since two thousand and fifteen, because or well, two thousand and fourteen, because so many refugees came over due to the invasion in Donbas, and and the the leading party really built their platform um, on an anti-immigrant and on, in many ways, like an anti-Ukrainian message. So it's very ironic that all of a sudden, you know, every everyone is is here to like is here to help and uh i'm i'm really curious how this is this is going to be developing and i've i've already heard just sort of anecdotally from people in bars and stuff all kinds of i don't know strange conspiracy theories or rude things about ukrainians but also you know um you know deepest heartfelt sympathies it, it, it's a very strange moment yeah there's like a there's a contradiction that is maybe not even recognized by the speaker while they're saying it right like just, yeah. yeah 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 um now obviously if we're going to be talking about refugees uh there there is a, another large part of this story uh which is that you know while white ukrainian refugees have been having a pretty easy time of it. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about, you know, specifically African and Indian and uh, Arab refugees who who are being treated pretty poorly. I don't know. I, I guess my first question would be: Are you seeing that on the other side of the border in Poland as well? Um, and it, like, if so, what does that look like? And and if not, why do you think you're not seeing that there? So I have to say, no, I, ha- I haven't seen really any of that on the other side of the Polish border. And I've, I've been talking to, you know, African students primarily that have come over um, in the last week. Um, I've, I've been in touch with lots of people from Nigeria, from Ghana, from Zimbabwe, um, from the Congo a little bit. And no one has reported really any difficulty or or hostility at the Polish side of the border. There's been reports of um, of like right wing um, right wing groups uh, targeting um, black refugees um, on the the Polish side of the border. There was there was a report last week or earlier this week where um, some some neo-Nazis, basically, for lack of a better word, uh, chased a group of Black students through Chemishil, um, 
also there's been reports that you know skinheads are are waiting for people at the at the Krakow train station. Um, it's been hard to verify some of that, um, and and the people that I have talked to have have overwhelmingly said that they've been they've been warmly welcomed and that most of their difficulties have been on the Ukrainian side of the border. Yeah. Cause I think that's where we've seen, you know, like the video of them being pulled off of trains and, you know, it, right. when they're even allowed on, you know, like, like a lot of the time just kind of, uh, left off, uh, you know, left to wait and, uh, a, a situation that, that feels like it's, it is uh, in, indicative of something maybe uglier that is kind of going. I mean, the, like the chaos of such a conflict like this, I think, can really let a lot of bad actors uh, take control of situations like this. Um, and I think that that's what we're seeing in Ukraine. It, and it is, it is unfortunate to hear that in Poland as well. Uh, that there's, you know, that there are people like lying in wait and, and, and trying to do any of this kind of abusive stuff. But uh, it is, it is slightly heartening, I think, to hear you say that it's not something that is really the, like that you're not seeing like a lot of it, at least not like openly. It, it does sound like you're hearing some, hearing about it, but it hasn't been uh, quite so bad that you know we're not seeing like videos of these skinheads like uh, jumping people. We're not seeing you know, a uh, uh, video of, of, of non-white refugees being attacked in Poland, right? Right. I mean, there, there are a few videos, but, but overall, it's really rumors and hearsay. And, and overwhelmingly, the testimony from who I've talked to is that on the Polish side, there's, there's really been no issue. I mean, I think it's really important to sort of highlight that, that this refugee crisis um, is completely different from what we saw seven years ago with Syrians um, and and people from the Middle East and Africa coming in 2015. The, the responses that people in Poland had to, to those refugees and migrants was just a complete 180. So we're really seeing a, a, just a completely different response to a, a, a similar, in terms of number numbers, uh, movement of people. Yeah, it is. It, I, I think it's like the the biggest movement of people since World War Two, right? Like within within Europe. I'm, I'm, I, that might be true. I've also seen since the Balkan Wars. So I'm, I, I actually think it's since the Balkan Wars. Cause that was yeah. also, um, like a few million. I, I don't think we're quite at World War II levels yet. Um, but you know, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's oh, been a week. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. There's, there's, uh, there's still a lot to, uh, to go here um yeah yeah so uh well thanks for that report i mean i I think i would like to just kind of talk to you a little bit more about um kind of your sense of of the conflict speaking from from where you're at me we'll we'll chat about that a little bit i mean you know we did kind of touch on this what it's like to be 
you know, in Poland while this war is going on. And, and you were talking about how, you know, there are signs of solidarity with Ukraine uh, kind of all around the country. And and there's, you know, a, a sense of, uh, uh, you know, friendship toward the Ukrainian people while while this conflict is going on. Uh, you know, what what else are you seeing as far as I mean, is, is, is there is there a sense of uh, kind of anti-Russian sentiment in in the uh, in the country or, or you know, are, are people like worried that maybe they're next or or are they kind of not so concerned about that being members of like EU and NATO? Well, yeah, I, I think that um, I think that the response, Poland's response is uh, its humanitarian response. I mean, I think is deeply traceable to its history as a member of the Soviet bloc um, for much of the 20th century. Um, and, and, and it's the same for other EU nations that were formula, formerly part of the Soviet bloc. So, I mean, Poland is part of the, of what's sometimes called the Visegrad 4 or V4. So it's part of a coalition between Hungary, Slovakia, Czech, Czechia, and, uh, and Poland, obviously, um, and and this was formed in in 1991, and it was meant to kind of be a way to eliminate uh, traces of the communist bloc from these countries as it as it moves t- closer to Europe. Um, and it, and really, in the last couple of years, um, it it has then shifted into the kind of illiberal bloc of Europe. So so the 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 populist, liberal, right-wing antagonists of Brussels. Um, and a lot of these right-wing parties now are, are in a really difficult position because they've both um, built themselves as, as like a sort of nationalist antagonist to, you know, the EU, right? While also needing to to build relations with with Russia um, but but also the the protection of the EU has sort of given them cover for from most of the last couple of years um, and, and now their their Kremlin links are, are really being exposed and I, I think a lot of these right-wing party leaders are are really concerned that um, their base is is going to potentially start turning on them unless they they show some kind of solidarity with the 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 plight of of Ukraine. Yeah, they're in the, they're in a bit of a sticky political situation. Yeah, very much. Yeah. And and same is happening with far right parties across Europe. I mean, the the Front National in France is is um having a really difficult time. The AFD in Germany um, is just really looks like it has egg on its face. Um, so these, these parties are, are trying to walk a, a strange line. And I think Poland really needs to respond to sort of historical fears about 
the great Russian bear coming for them, right? That like, if they're coming for Ukraine, what's to stop them? What's to, what's to stop Putin from trying to rebuild the Soviet Union, which I, I'm, I'm skeptical that that's actually what's happening. But um, it's definitely, I think, a fear here. Yeah, I think that there's like, there's a certain objective way of looking at this, right? Where uh, when you're not somebody who lives in one of these countries, uh, you know, as, 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 as neither of us are, you can kind of look at the situation and be like, well, I doubt that he's going to, I doubt that he is going to try uh, to reestablish the Soviet bloc. And, and it doesn't look like he can, but I think that if you live there, you probably feel a little bit differently. It's like, well, yeah, probably not, but you know, it's, it, that's, it's kind of yeah, an existential like, threat to me. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, I mean, probably not, but like, uh, <laughs> there's a war literally next door. Maybe, maybe is good enough to be concerned. I think for a lot, for a lot of Polish people. Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of wanted to, to pull back out a little bit and, and kind of, and, and, and dig in a little bit more into what you're saying about these right-wing parties around Europe where, you know, they've, they've had to kind of walk this line, uh, and, and try to kind of, I guess, avoid embarrassment or kind of sidestep the embarrassment of being connected, uh, to Russia while, you know, while this severely unpopular war is going on. And it feels like it's possible that maybe the, the ramifications of this, and, and, you know, this is just, we're just hypothesizing here because you can't, you know, there's no way to really tell like what's going to happen in the future, but it feels like it could have a kind of sea change as far as these right-wing parties who are connected to Russia, because how, how long are people going to buy the excuses? You know, like, like how, like how do they kind of thread the needle here uh, between being involved uh, with with this country that is becoming a global pariah at the moment uh, and, and kind of keeping up their, their appearances as it were, right? Like that, that seems to be what you're saying. And, and Masha, I see, we'll take your call in just a sec, but I, I just want to get uh, Carol on this fast. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that um, these, these countries have, have really, um, benefited from from being the the dissenters within the eu right um by by being the dissenters against brussels they've really been able to kind of like beef up their voices within the eu but ultimately i think when push comes to shove um they ultimately i think understand that the eu is tolerant of their, you know, their dissent and their, and their, you know, illiberal posturing, which is, to be clear, extremely dangerous and, and harmful to democracy, um, and to the people in these countries, uh, such as Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, and uh, Czechia. By the way, uh, I should actually just quickly asterisk this, uh, that Slovakia is actually run by a, a progressive woman now since 2019, but prior to that, um, so from 2015 to 2019, uh, was run by a, a right-wing populist. But anyway, 
Um, I think that these countries, at least let's say Czechia, Poland, and Hungary, understand that it's better to throw your lot in with the people who are going to allow you to make a big stink because Russia is clearly not actually going to allow you to do any of that if if it does you know end up moving further west if 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 it was possible for you know the the Soviet Union to be made again um and the the Soviet bloc and the communist bloc to to be made again um i doubt that uh the the kind of pushback that Orban gives to the EU would be tolerated by the Kremlin. Let's put it that way. Right. And also like uh, just, a, I mean, I don't know if this distinction needs to be made for the audience, but you know, when we're talking about the reestablishment of the Soviet bloc, we're not talking about the reestablishment of communism. Right. We're just right. talking about the reestablishment yes. just of the territory. I, um, yeah. I, I want that's a very good point. Sorry. Uh, I, I want to be very clear about that as well. Yeah. It's not about, communism or even socialism is about the territory from, you know, 1945 to 1989. Exactly. Okay. So, uh, Masha, I see that we have you here. So I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, have you come in, just try and keep it to like a minute or two minutes, please. And yeah, there we go. Should be all set. Hi. Okay. I will try and keep it super brief. Uh, the way that, the way that those people thread the needle, I mean, again, there's a difference between the people and the leader, right? Uh, it, in, for all in, indi- indicators right now, Putin is hugely popular inside of Russia. Orban is hu- hugely popular for his own people. I don't know what, like, you know, the West has its own narratives about what that is, but those are traditionalist parties that are interested in state, state sovereignty, actually, right? And so one of the one of the narratives that's that's popular, uh, I mean, fraternal wars are not popular for Slavs, for Slavic people or for Eastern Europeans, obviously. Right. But that's that's part of why uh, uh, Russian forces are at least trying to give the appearance of not, uh, you know, of not. Um, killing civilians inside of uh, Ukraine, right? And then also kind of like uh, pushing this narrative that they're there uh, because of the uh, atrocities in the Donbass, yes? So that's that's how they thread the needle. Uh, insofar as Putin is is a villain, you know, that, that counter-narrative also has an explanation for that, which is that Putin is also a puppet of the West, right? Being Being anointed by... Uh, you know, American CIA handlers in a conversation with Yeltsin. Yeltsin was instructed to elevate him. So there's an explanation there as well, right? So that's that's what I can offer. One question I have for Carol. Uh, I've been hearing from, um, you know, uh, anti anti trafficking uh, comrades and Nordic model uh, comrades in in Europe about uh, these these uh, Germans pulling up with vans at the border. Uh, you know, with, with those signs for Berlin and simultaneously I've been hearing about the, uh, a giant influx of trafficked Ukrainian women and children in uh, brothels in Berlin. So do you know about that? Can you tell us about that? Is there any steps being taken to make sure that the people that are showing up with vans at the border are not people that are traffickers? Thank you so much, Masha. Uh, Carol, go ahead. Yeah, Masha, that is such a great point. Thank you so much for for 
mentioning that. And also thank you for noting uh, the difference between people and their leaders. Uh, I think that's also a great point. As far as trafficking goes, I have been hearing that a lot. Uh, I've been hearing that that is a very serious issue. Uh, it was one of the first things that I heard when I was in Warsaw. Uh, I met a, a girl that had just come back from, from volunteering at the border and had explained that, you know, a lot of people show up like pretending to be helpers, um, but they are potentially traffickers. It's, it's really hard to like distinguish and, and see like who's sincere and who isn't. Um, I, I, I mean, I think that lawyers are really the ones that are, that are, that are working on this lawyers and the kinds of activists that you are speaking with anti-trafficking activists. And I've been also trying to follow this story as I've been here and as I've come back, um, just because being at the border was so busy, um, but yes, it's a it's a really serious problem. I've heard a couple different things. I've heard that you know, oh, it's not actually as big of a deal as people are saying, and and it it might uh, create more fear than is is actually real. Um, but it's it's definitely something to be aware of, um, especially because Eastern European women, especially Ukrainian women, have long been. Uh, victims of trafficking um, and and of like the sex trade essentially. So um, that's definitely something to be aware of. And I wouldn't say that there's any huge vetting process for these people that are show that are coming and like just holding up signs. And yeah, a lot of them seem really sincere, but. It, yeah. it's really impossible to tell it's 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 such a scary thought to you know yeah you you know you finally escape the violence and then you know you're just uh thrust thrust into a different uh in, into a different level of hell uh you know just like that um uh you know we'll, we'll go to you in, in in a second uh caller but uh carol i just wanted to ask a little bit more like um you said you've been kind of looking into this story a little bit. Um, is, is, you know, Masha was talking about uh, people coming from Germany, but, uh, you know, you have to assume that they're coming from, from elsewhere. Uh, you know, did you see any of that kind of stuff? Um, like anything that kind of made you like a little bit wary? I mean, I, I, I realize that it's, it's almost like an impossible uh, question because, you know, you, you don't want to like interfere with somebody uh, you know, of, of finding their way out of, of, of the, of the situation there on the border. But at the same time, uh, you know, was there anything that made you a little suspicious or a little uncomfortable, uh, when you were there at the border, as far as that went? I mean, I know you said it was chaos, but anything jumped out at you? Yeah. Yeah. I, there was, there was this one person that was holding up a sign for France and I, I started talking to them, um, and, we we were we were just talking a little bit and he was just being a little bit cagey you know i was like oh where are you from he was like the south of france and i was like oh but where he's just like oh you know just like around toulouse and i was like okay um you know like what are you, what are you doing here and he was like well i just wanted to like come and help and like you know i've i've got this van i've got this car um i don't know that person 
kind of sketched me out. And then I saw him ap- approaching like young women. I, I didn't, I didn't, but like, that's all that's, that's all the people that are there. It's just young women and children. It's because there's no men. Um, so, so it's really, really hard to tell. Um, I, I, I don't know. There, there was like another van that I saw that had like no windows uh, and, and just had like a Ukrainian flag on it which seemed a little sketchy uh that like it just wouldn't have any windows it was just like a like a uh like a builder van um so it's just it's really hard to suss out like what um what's going on with that actually i mean that's i think that's something that's gonna like take a really really long time to like get right and really really uncover accurately because I mean, I do think that people are going with good intentions. I, I, I genuinely think that people are inspired to come all over and help. I met a guy from Washington DC actually, who was just like, you know what? Like I had a couple weeks off on vacation from my job at the bank and I just wanted to come and help. And and he signed up to just be a volunteer, right? He he just had like a volunteer vest and, and was just kind of trying to take direction from people trying to help. Um, so he didn't have a car or anything, but I, I do think that there are people who like genuinely want to help. And I mean, it, it, it's sometimes like offering a ride is like just the easiest thing that you can do. Like I was talking to some people at Medi- Medica and they had just crossed over for like eight hours and they were like trying to find like a, a bus or something. And I was like, look, like I'm, I'm going back to Premichel, like Premichel, do you, do you want a ride? And they said, yeah, but then they, they changed their mind and they, they wanted to go with like a group or like a bus, which like makes total sense. Um, so I, I think, I think there's a lot of confu- confusion, which is, um, a, a lot of people are sincere, but there's always the chance that, you know, people are taking advantage of this situation where people are desperate and vulnerable. Right, right. Yeah, it's and which is just the just a horrible situation. So, uh, yes. all right, caller, we're going to um, we're going to take you now. And you should be all set there. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Hulkroy, and I was wondering if you could speak to the origins of neo-nazis in ukraine i know i know they're a minority of the population but very dominant in terms of power and how militant they are but uh, like how i was just wondering how they like came to be um uh like considering the fact that they also they're um many ukrainians fought nazis in the world war ii and died for um died in the process so like how did that ideology like the yeah the ideology came to be um yeah i was just wondering if you could speak to that yeah absolutely um, yeah, go, yeah go ahead carol i mean this is probably carol's probably got uh, you know more expertise on this um just just from her background so i'll i'll, I'll let you go ahead I mean, so so my impression is that they're not actually very powerful politically. Um, they and and they're not just a minority. I mean, really, the most um, the most extreme uh, 
neo-Nazis, I think that we could call them, are, are really um, a, a battalion called the Azov Battalion. They're large and they are influential. And but really, like their their influence has been, I think, sort of exaggerated a bit, in part because they have they have connected and networked a lot with other international extreme right wing groups. So, you know, they I think that their their presence in in the the kind of world that we understand of as Ukraine has been sort of outsized because they've been um, very outward reaching to other right wing groups around the world. So in in France, uh, you know, <laughs> Hungary, Germany, um, they've 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 been. Um, they've been a kind of lightning rod for uh, right-wing sentiment. Um, but in terms of, of how it came to be, um, I think, first of all, Ukraine um, as, a, as a nation has, has really struggled to, to assert itself as, as a nation. I think as a nation, particularly one that's, that's distinct from Russia. I mean, like that's that's part of Putin's whole whole strategy and ideology here, um, and and I think whatever comes with with that struggle of of trying to like establish oneself as like a distinct nation, I think there are going to be ultra nationalists, and I think you can find that basically everywhere. Every country has has ultra nationalists. I mean, we have them in the United States. Um, especially, you know, with with the rise of like nativist movements or, or, you know, Trump's America first and this kind of isolationist nationalism that's now entering American politics. Um, so I think that's kind of where this comes from. And, and of course, uh, Ukraine's own national identity is very much um, rooted in its resistance to Nazism. Same in the way that, you know, Russia's is as well. I mean, Russia will will frequently, well, frequently, I mean, every every year for Victory Day, um, you know, they they remind the population that Russia saved everyone from from Nazism, essentially. But I mean, Russia has also become a, a gathering ground for for right wing extremists and intellectuals like absolutely there's been there's been right-wing training sessions and 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 intellectual gatherings that have happened in Russia that have attracted neo-nazis also from around the world so I think I think that's kind of what's going on I I'm, I'm not sure if I'm answering this super clearly but uh, I I hope I'm kind of getting at the heart of it that that basically I think Ukraine, um, has been struggling to um, create and, and promote a nationalist narrative and, and as a result of, as a way to justify itself as like a legitimate nation. Um, and I think as a result of that, some of the byproduct of that has been that there has been some very extreme, hateful ultra-nationalists. And that's not to excuse it um, in any yeah. way. 
I would, I would, you know, I would, I would add, uh, from my perspective, um, I think that the, the coverage of the Ukraine military, uh, by journalists in the West has, has not, um, and, and here I'm talking about like, like, uh, you know, mainstream stuff like, you know, and NBC and, and Getty and stuff like has not been great because they haven't really, you know, vetted any of these people and they just mm-hmm. kind of, they just mm-hmm. kind of cover like whoever. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that adds to it, but I, I, I really think, and this is probably the strongest feeling that I have about uh, this situation of the far right groups and the neo-Nazis who, who have, uh, you know, who work within the Ukrainian military and, and are, uh, at least tolerated uh, by the government in this, you know, here, here I'm talking before the invasion um, that by invading and, and by attacking Ukraine, uh, what Putin and what, what Russia has done is to uh, vastly empower these groups. Like these groups have now become even more empowered. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it's quite likely uh, that we are going to see, you know, at some point in the next, you know, uh, uh, months, years, I don't think it'll be very, very long before these groups seize more power uh, within Ukraine. Of course, that, that kind of depends on how this all shakes out. Um, if if somehow Russia is able to take over the country. And, but again, I mean, so if. And, but, and I mean, again, I, I totally agree. Yeah, this is, I, I, this, yeah go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, like, like forecasting, like, it's like, if Russia takes over the entire country, uh, you would have a resistance movement, uh, which uh, it, it's hard to see how it wouldn't be dominated, at least in certain places, uh, by the neo-Nazi and far-right elements. If uh, Russia is defeated or Russia compromises uh, with Ukraine, what I think is much more likely than Russia actually being, like, quote-unquote defeated, uh, then I think these, these far-right groups will still uh, end up having more power within Ukraine because they will be able to say, you know, we were there, we, we you know, we were fighting in the resistance. Uh, so I, I think that any way that this plays out, uh, this, this stated reason of denazification for this invasion, which, which I think is just completely ridiculous, but uh, is the exact opposite of what is going to happen because what is going to happen is that these groups are going to become more and more empowered. Um, and I don't think that that was like necessarily uh, Putin's goal or Russia's goal here. Um, I just don't think that they really thought it through very much. Or, and, I don't, and I honestly don't think that they really cared about that at all as a real reason for doing what they were doing. I think that they decided that they were going to do this for other reasons and, uh, you know, just kind of conveniently uh, decided that, that this denazification regime was going to be the reason for it. But I think that, the, that ultimately what is going to happen is that these far-right groups, whichever way it comes down, are going to be more empowered. Uh, and, Carol, I'll let you respond, and then we'll take Masha, and then I think uh, I think we'll wrap after that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I ultimately agree. I think that, um, you know, uh, ultra-right, uh, ultra-nationalist groups thrive on instability and fear. Um, and, <laughs> I mean... It's a really scary place right now um, to be in in Ukraine, and you know I think I think that's exactly right that that 
no matter what, either you either either Putin succeeds and and the Russian uh, army succeeds in in sort of like crushing uh, Ukraine sort of in like the physical battle space, but it's going to have just a long standing insurgency after that. Um, you're you're going to see um, more right wing elements, I think, and more ultra nationalist elements. Um, and even if, you know, Ukraine defeats Russia, I think exactly. Yeah. That, um, that you'll, you'll still see these right-wing elements to, um, that, that will get stronger, um, yeah. Against yeah, Russia. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. So, so Masha, we'll, uh, we'll take your call and, um, and then we'll, uh, we'll chat about that a little bit and then I think we'll wrap. Yeah, I have to push back, obviously. I mean, I think that there's, we have to try to like not confuse like literal Nazis, like the Azov Battalion and others, and the like kind of broadly traditionalist, what the West would call right wing, but what are actually sort of populist, um, I guess, like, uh, patriotic movements, right? From the perspective of the people who participate in them. Now, in terms of whether whether the the supposed uh, quote unquote denazification campaign that that Putin is uh, sort of you know taking on in in Ukraine, uh, the facts the facts on the ground are that they've uh, encircled Mariupol, which is the capital for Nazi, especially specifically Azovs. Uh, the 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 Chechnyans who Kadyrov pledged seventy thousand troops, but right now ten thousand are marching towards Mariupol, while while the Russian troops have encircled it and are allowing corridors, or trying to I suppose allow corridors for for civilians to escape, while the Azovs are are uh, keep holding them back so that they have human shields. But once Chechens arrive, there probably will be, um, you know, street to street urban fighting between two mm-hmm. kind of nasty guerrilla forces who have an ideological hatred for one another. So that's, that's my read of that. Like, I think that there, that there is foreign backed, like there were uh, NATO, uh, like laptops and weapon systems captured from another Nazi safe house. Like these are, these are real things that there are pictures and video and audio of on the internet. So if you want to respond to that, I'd love to hear it. Uh, I mean, I, that sounds right to me. Um, that is, was there a question? I'm so sorry. Uh, if I, I think, if I, I think she just wanted a, 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 a response, uh, to, to her, uh, interpretation. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that, um, that it's that it's true that there needs to be a distinction between um, the sort of more populist or traditionalist aspects of of like what she's right, what we would call the right wing and like actual literal neo-Nazis who, you know, think that, you know, uh, only white people are the ubermensch like and that literally idolize Hitler, for example. Um but I do think that they often go more hand in hand than um, than I think, uh, and, and and I think I think as the conflict gets more and more severe, they will have a a, a greater rapprochement. Um, 
And and I think there will be more kind of like excuses made for um, these like truly like ultra nationalist extreme right wing ideologues, um, especially as as Masha said that the, they will be engaging in literal urban warfare and um, it, it's going to be a, a very ugly fight. But I mean, these these fighters are going to be like on the front line. And I think it's going to be hard for um, sort of more like traditionalist nationalist ideas to um, shy away from, from those like frontline fighters. I I don't know if, if that's a super clear response. Well, I think, I think that with, uh, with both of our comments here um, that, that again, I mean, you know, we're just kind of forecasting what right. <laughs> what we think is gonna, like like right. certainly not saying this is what's going to happen. We're saying yeah, this is you know uh, looking at it is is what we think. But um, Carol, I'd really like to thank you for for joining us and and for giving us uh, you know a look into uh, this situation on the ground and and the refugee. Uh, refugee crisis in, in Ukraine and, and just, you know, like this, this way of looking at it from, uh, from Poland kind of over the border has been really valuable. And, and obviously, you know, uh, our, our mutual friend, Jack Crosby was, was able to help uh, explain it to flashpoint audience, uh, from inside of Ukraine. So it's, it's, it's great to get, get this kind of fuller picture, uh, perspective of this conflict that is just, you know, ongoing and shifting and changing uh, rapidly. So I'd like to thank you very much for that. And uh, what are you working on and where can people find your stuff? Uh, I'm currently working on uh, some articles for The Nation right now. Uh, you can follow me at on Twitter at, at then Carol said, as in then she says a tweet. Um, so... Yeah, that's that's really where you can find me, and uh, I'll be I'll be posting updates there. Excellent, um, excellent, and so and this will be up for replay. Um, you may be listening to this on replay uh, right now. Uh, if you're listening to this on the app, please be sure to subscribe. And uh, if you're listening to this on desktop, uh, consider getting the call-in app. Uh, thanks a lot, Carol. Thanks, uh, Masha and Hokeroy, very much for your calls. Really appreciate that. Um, and we'll see you later this week, guys. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Thanks, Owen. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.